Well, our Old Testament reading, in which will also be our sermon text tonight, comes from Esther chapter 3. And we'll read the entire chapter tonight. Esther chapter 3. This is God's Word. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to the king, to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And then Acts 4, 
When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, we are looking at, at, at Second Parish in the mornings in the book of Esther. And we were here this morning, so I thought that I would bring this passage to you this evening. You probably know already uh, that the book of Esther is about the hidden hand of God. God's name is mentioned how many times in the book of Esther? Zero. There's hardly any religious references even to the Jewish religion in the book of Esther. Maybe one part in which Mordecai, when he is, is praying in sackcloth and ashes, is a description of what Jews did as a sign of repentance and seeking after God's face. But even then, God's name isn't mentioned. Yet Esther is a book that teaches us that God's silence does not mean his absence. And we read in the book of Esther a number of, shall we call them, coincidences that occur, which actually show that there are really no coincidences, ultimately, in which God is saving his chosen people. Chapter 1, just as to orient us, chapter 1 started out with King Ahasuerus throwing a banquet um, and throwing what we might... A banquet seems too dignified. It was a massive party. All right? And it was a massive party first for all of his friends. And then he expanded that that rejoicing and that party to the entire city of Susa. And he gave um, instructions that people could drink as much as they wanted to. Nobody had to drink, but they could drink, and they could drink as much as they wanted to. And so you have this king who wanted to show us... I mean, the, the party was thrown, I think, for, a, for 180 days. Ahasuerus, by the way, was known for his ruthlessness. He once had a bridge built. The bridge collapsed. He had all the engineers hanged. 
He was not a man to be trifled with, and he was like any other king during that day, a man who sought to parade his prowess in front of all those who were important. And so he threw this massive party with lots of wine, and we ask ourselves, what could go wrong? (laughs) And it actually goes very wrong, because in the middle, it says after he had drank much wine, he was probably drunk, He asked his queen, Vashti, to come in so that people could behold her beauty. Now, if that that seems sanitized, he is parading her around as an object to be oogled at. He is parading her around as a trophy in front of all of his friends. And if that disgusts us, well, it should. She says no. And the whole kingdom is thrown into crisis because if the queen can say no to the king, think of what wives are going to say to their husbands at home. This is what is talked about in the first chapter of Esther. And so a decree is made reminding all wives that they should respect their husbands. Queen Vashti is banished from the king's sight, never to be brought back. She is dethroned and decrowned, and she will live as a widow, so to speak, for the rest of her life. Then we're introduced, almost in passing, to Esther in chapter 2. She, too, is beautiful. She rises to favor in the eyes of the king's eunuchs, the king's eunuch who had charge over all these women who had been, let's be clear about this, taken from the kingdom. They did not have a choice, and if that disgusts us, it should. But she is taken, and she rises to favor. The king can spend one night with all of these women, And that is what it sounds like. And Esther finds favor in his eyes. It says he loves her more than any other. And all of a sudden, this orphaned Jewish girl whose ethnicity and race is not known because Mordecai tells her to keep it hidden is now queen of the largest empire in the world. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3. After these things. Esther is queen. She's a Jew, but nobody knows it except for Mordecai, and she's not telling anybody. And we know that the Lord, if we, if we know the book of Esther, the Lord is going to use her to bring about sweeping reform in Persia, and she is going to be the savior of Israel. And tonight we're introduced to the, the protagonist of the story, if we can put it that way, Haman the Agagite. Even his name kind of sounds menacing, doesn't it? Even his name sounds like he could be somebody who's Shady. And, and in Haman, however, we get a picture of the epitome of pride. In Haman, we get the picture of the epitome of pride. It is plastered all over chapter 3. It'll seep into chapter 5 as well that we don't have time to look at really 
tonight. But we will see what pride does as we look at Haman tonight and what it does to put Haman on a collision course, actually. We don't have time for this either with Mordecai. But two things here. The pride of Haman and the plan of Haman. Okay? The pride of Haman and the plan of Haman. So notice first the pride. Now, now what is pride? It's a big question, right? What is pride? Books have been written about it. Pride, at the end of the day, is simply this. Complete and utter self-absorption. Complete and utter self-worship. And so, filled with pride, you aren't interested in relationships unless they benefit you. You don't engage in activities unless they're to your advantage. Nothing, if we are filled with pride, is done for the thing in and of itself. And definitely it's not about doing it for someone else. It's all to benefit the anti-Trinity, me, myself, and I. Our agenda, our glory, our status. Pride says your life exists for me. Which, by the way, is the opposite of the gospel, right? Which Jesus says, my life for yours. And when you are prideful, of course, you don't really care about accomplishments. You don't really care about goals. You don't really care about climbing the ladder so much as seeing others watch you climb the ladder. You want others to notice your accomplishments. And this dynamic of pride is really written all over the story of Haman, isn't it? Look at what we're told about Haman. The king promotes him to the highest place that you could be promoted as a civilian. The the next step, you had to be royalty to enter that echelon of, of rule in Persia. So he is promoted all the way to the top, as high as you could go without being royalty. He is higher than anybody else. He is the envy of everybody. But there is in in Haman's heart and mind an endless calculation, and pride does this to us. Is this enough? Am I really getting everything that I deserve? Am I really getting everything that I deserve from everyone who needs to give it to me? Everyone who should be giving it to me. And that's why when the text tells us that Mordecai wouldn't bow down, Haman loses it. Everybody's bowing down to Haman. Let's say he passes 250 people on his way to work every morning. 249 people are bowing down to him. 
except Mordecai. Now, some people talk about why Mordecai did not bow down. They disagree on why he didn't. Um, Some people say that it's because Jewish people were told not to bow down to anyone but God. But Mordecai in chapter 8 actually bows to the king. And so that couldn't be it. Some have tried to argue that Mordecai was just being a brat, (laughs) that he was just being obstinate. Uh, that he was just being, um, uh, that, that he was just being stubborn, that he was jealous of Haman. But there's really no hint of that, even uh, in in all, not in this passage certainly, but really not in Esther at all. But if we look close at the passage, we we kind of get a hint as to why Mordecai didn't bow down. And here's what it probably is. Haman was an Agagite. Now, what's an Agagite? He was a descendant of King Agag. Does that sound familiar? Um, in the book of Samuel, he was, Agag was an Amalekite. And the Amalekites were old, ancient enemies of Israel. And Israel's history with uh, the Amalekites was constant. And it was a constant history of conflict and enmity. God even condemns the Amalekites to complete extinction in Exodus 17. And guess who he sends to carry out that extinction project? It's Saul. Of course, we know that when Saul gets there, he doesn't kill King Agag or any of the animals because Saul was like, well, I want to offer them as sacrifices to you, Lord. And the Lord says, no, I said everything goes. And so Agag lives. And so for Mordecai, by the way, and we didn't mention this about him, his genealogy is linked to Benjamin, to Saul, to bow to Haman, who is a descendant of Agag. It was too much. It would be to bow to a mortal enemy of God and his people. And so when everybody at the gate is trying to figure out, Mordecai, what is wrong with you? What's your problem? Why why aren't you bowing? He told them he was a Jew. Meaning he no doubt told them the history of the Jewish people with the Amalekites and his tribe's relationship with Agag, the king. So that's probably why Mordecai is like, nope, that's a bridge too far. I can't do that. That's over the line. And so when he doesn't, because it doesn't seem that he can in good conscience, again, Haman loses it. One person among hundreds, maybe even thousands, that he passes on the way to the palace and Haman is beside himself with one. Why? Because it's all about him getting his due. It's all about him getting his glory from everyone who he believes should give him glory. 
And it's about him all the time. And he cannot stand the thought of even one person not giving the honor that he thinks he deserves. The respect he deserves. Who cares about everybody else? That one. (laughs) Pride isn't happy with the 249. It must be everyone. And so pride makes Haman and us often so turned in on ourselves. So if we can put it this way, self-absorbed. That instead of focusing on all of God's blessings and all of the positives of the relationships that we have and the accomplishments that we've been granted by God. We focus on the one thing that we don't have. The one thing that we think we deserve. Or many, maybe it's many things. Because nothing more than more will suffice. And nothing more than everyone recognizing our worth will suffice. That's Haman's pride. It's written all over the place. Then the text secondly goes on to talk about why that's so dangerous. Look at the dan- look how dangerous pride is, and particularly Haman's pride. You see it in verses 5 and 6. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. By the way, just to set this on a timeline, some of the Jews had already headed back to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah talk about that. The Jews were coming out of exile. Some of them had already gone back to Jerusalem. They had already begun to rebuild Jerusalem. God was calling them to rebuild the temple. Some of them still stayed in Susa. And this is a story of those who stayed or were still in Susa. So, by the way, this edict meant that it wasn't just the Jews in Susa that would be killed. It would be the Jews in Jerusalem. Step back for a second, by the way. In the, in the whole plan of redemptive history, God says in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to bring about someone of the seed of the woman, both her spiritual seed and her physical seed, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. But if that entire seed is annihilated, what is actually put in jeopardy? The salvation of God's people and the salvation of the whole world. So so we're not just talking here about the annihilation of an ethnic people. 
but the whole plan of God to bring a people to himself being put at risk, though we know that it wasn't really at risk because God is not up in heaven wringing his hands. So there's so much at stake going on here. And so Haman is not satisfied with just making Mordecai bow. All the Jews have to die. All of them. Haman's not even honest about who they are. Some people in your kingdom, king, are people who don't have laws like everyone else, and they're not obeying the king's command. And so Haman knows if he's general enough, he doesn't have to explain who these people are or the fact that one of the previous kings had sent them back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple because who knows if Ahasuerus would say, no, wait, we can't do that. So he's very vague. All the while a Jewish orphaned girl is his queen. And Haman, by the way, gets the king to agree. Finds his way into the king's presence. That's probably what the casting of lots was all about. Who will get to go into the king's presence next? Haman, as high as he was in civil society, just couldn't prance into the king's chambers. He had to be called, or his lot had to be cast. So the king agrees and even gives Haman, his signet ring, so he could write in the king's name and with the king's authority to everyone throughout the entire Persian Empire and hatch this plot to annihilate the Jewish people. And his, by the way, his, his plug to the king is, they're not making you any money. And if I can annihilate them, we can get their spoils, and I will make you rich. And Ahasuerus said something like, you had me at there not making me any money. Because that is what he was all about. Remember, parading all of his treasures in front of his friends, parading his wife as an object to be desired in front of all of his friends. Haman was speaking the language of King Ahasuerus. And so he gives a signet ring to Haman so he could write all the letters to the various executioners and puts the king's seal on them. Esther's identity. We're not sure whether it's known to Haman or not. It doesn't seem that it is at this point in time. And the law is made that couldn't be taken back without making the king seem weak, that on a certain day, as you were in the marketplace with your Jewish friend, that you would turn on them and kill them and wipe them out, take their wealth. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands, would die. Now, This is probably one of the most extreme examples of the danger of pride. 
in all the Bible. But here's the thing about Haman's pride and really about all pride. It completely and utterly... It is completely and utterly atheistic. Either in theory and practice, or even not in theory, but in practice. Show of hands, how often is it easy for us to live as practical atheists? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm raising mine. It's easy to live that way, right? To make our plans without a thought of Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It's easy to make our plans without a thought of Proverbs 16.19 in His heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his step. Certainly in Haman's mind and in pride-filled minds, God and his sovereignty is discounted, it's shoved to the side, or it's not even thought of at all. Pride is, at the end of the day, atheistic. Now, here's the thing that might shock us. Because if, if it's our tendency, right, to think, oh, we're talking about those people out there. <laughs> Ironically, God has far more reason to act against us than Ahasuerus did against the Jewish people of his day. Aren't we often filled with pride? There is a certain self-absorption that we can fall into. We, we, can, we can live our lives in relationship to other people that you, you exist for me. Your life for mine. We can become overly infatuated with attention, with our, with our reputation, with power, with influence. We can be filled with ideas that we don't believe certain people are, are worthy of status or love or material possessions. Pride can often put on the mask of envy. Right? And what's envy? Envy is when I rejoice at your weeping and I weep at your rejoicing. That's what envy is. Your rejoicing hurts me. Your accomplishments, the praise that others give to you, the, 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 the victories that you have, they make me sad. Jesus says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Envy says, no, rejoice over those who weep and weep over those who rejoice. And we become infuriated. 
that we can't give the that we can't attain the things to the things that we think we should attain to or need to attain to that people don't recognize in us what we recognize in ourselves that someone else is growing and flourishing in their faith and we feel stuck and instead of rejoicing with them we weep Now, we might not move in situations like that to the extreme of homicide, though some do. At least not with our hands, but with our words we might, and with our anger that becomes hatred, we often commit homicide of the heart. And so if we look in the mirror and not just focus on, oh, those people, prideful people out there, we will see that God has far more reason to act against us than Ahasuerus did against the Jews of the day. And it's not necessarily to God's profit to tolerate us. (laughs) And he could have easily and legitimately signed a decree for our discussion, our destruction justly because of our sin, because of our prevailing pride, which was, by the way, the sin of our first parents, right? They decided that they could be judge over whether God was right and true or whether Satan was right and true. But praise God, that is not how he has responded to us. Right? At all. He has not dealt with us in that way. Instead, in the eternal counsel of his son, he agreed or they agreed that you and I, who are often filled with pride, would not be exterminated by God's judgment, but that we would be elevated to the status of children. who are loved by him. See, Jesus was annihilated for us. Our pride is accounted to him. And and if we want to see what pride deserves, we just need to look at the cross, right? We always need to be looking at our own hearts To never think and be in the dangerous position of saying, oh, that couldn't be me. That could never be me. But to be humble before the Lord. Even in here when God's name in Esther isn't even mentioned, God is working to preserve his people so he can save you and me. By the way, this salvation, and and we shouldn't be unclear about this, The decree of God has been signed, and it can't be changed. Our sins have to be paid for, and they're either going to be paid for by us or by Christ in our place. The question for every human being on this earth is, which will they choose? Christ in their stead? Or will they pay the wages of sin themselves? 
And we would say, of course, as believers, that there's nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away the debt that we owe. No amount of money in the world, no amount of good deeds that we could ever do. Turning over a leaf for past sins doesn't cut it. We've all earned the wages of sin. But the wonderful news for those who have trusted in Christ is that awful sentence of destruction and condemnation has been lifted because we sing it, right? In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That is the declaration of our King to us. Pardoned. Forgiven. But even more than that, and we'll just close with this. As we talk about the forgiveness of God, as we talk about the decree and punishment for sin lifted, we can fall into this idea about our relationship with God is, okay, He forgives us, He pardons us, but really when He draws near to us, He kind of holds His nose. And He has to like us because of what Jesus has done. But the Bible doesn't speak that way against about God's people at all. It talks about God delighting in His people. It talks about God's God lavishly loving His people. Not just putting up with them. It talks about our relationship with Jesus as a bridegroom to a bride one of love and faithfulness and delighting in. Part of our problem is we often fall into the the trap of thinking that God really doesn't love us, He just has to. Instead of saying, wait. He loves me as really and as readily as He loves Jesus Himself. Unhesitatingly. He doesn't think and say, huh, do I really want to do this? Do I want to really love this fully? Unhesitating love. Unhinged delight for his people. Do you see yourself that way in your relationship to God? We don't. (laughs) But we should. And we might say, well, what about our sin? What about our pride? What about our unfaithfulness? That's the tension we always hold in our minds. Sinful but loved. A sinner but a saint. Deeply flawed but deeply cared for. But God's steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness is to all generations. He knows his people. Jesus knows his sheep, and nobody's going to snatch them out of his hand. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe this. Help us to, to embrace it fully.
Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.